Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 55 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a fabulous show lined up for you today. In a short while I'll be sharing with you an interview with this week's guest Linda Hudson. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured, offering up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Linda Hudson. We'll be talking about her specialising with working with children using hypnotherapy. We'll round off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. As I say at the beginning of every uh, Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website or the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments, make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do go and give us a favourable rating, even a review over at iTunes. I'll be your BFF if you do. So first of all, today, this week's interview, it's with great pleasure that I welcome Linda Hudson as my guest today. I've been aware of Linda and her work for a number of years, and mainly because uh, her book, Scripts and Strategies in Hypnotherapy with Children, is recommended by so many professional peers um, of mine over the years. However, the plaudits for that book, are, you know, are, 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 they're incredible, and they include, among many others, highly regarded individuals such as uh, Eric author Ruben Battino and uh, the late great Gil Boyne. Um, um, funnily enough, I told Linda when we were off air that I had approached Gil Boyne about reviewing my own first book um, and that he had actually refused. Um, he had objected to the way in which I sold hypnosis audios in the very early days of my career, nearly 20 years ago now, and I got the distinct impression he did not care for the young upstart that I was back then, and heck, some may think I still am today. Linda has worked in this field since 1994, as you're going to find out in our interview um, in in more detail. And she has an impressive CV indeed, and that includes, uh, for example, being a fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine and a member of the British Psychological Society. Um, And both are quite rare within the field of hypnotherapy. Naturally, I was really excited about speaking to Linda and delighted she took me up on my invitation to be a guest on the show here. So for now, get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. 
So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to welcome to Hypnosis Weekly the one and only Linda Hudson. Welcome to Hypnosis Weekly, Linda. Hello, Adam. Lovely to be here. So, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, um, how did you get into this field? Perhaps you could tell us about some of your background and how you arrived at where you are now. Okay, I used to be a teacher of English as a foreign language. Actually, I was a director of studies in a language school. Mm. And um, all of the time, I was really, really interested in language and learning. And I'd, I'd done psychology as a degree, so I was very interested in the psychology of language learning. And um, I used to get a, a lot of literature through inviting me to this or, or that conference because I think I'd once put my name down on a, on a mailing list of something vaguely alternative-y. <laughs> and I kept getting these mails through about NLP that at that point I'd never heard of. And mostly I put them in the bin because uh, I used to get loads of stuff. Mm. But then... One day, I, I just happened to have a free weekend, and I thought, well, this sounds interesting. And I went along to Regent's Park, where they had a conference, and they had lots and lots of different speakers. And I came home totally entranced, and probably entranced is really the right word, mm. with, with what I'd seen, what I'd heard, what I'd actually taken part in. And I thought it was the most amazing thing. So following on from that, I did several NLP courses, uh, usually at, at weekends. I did one with um, John Seymour and uh, Michael Neal. He was doing his first course, I think, at the time with John Seymour. And he was quite inspiring. Um, and... Uh, what did I do? I then followed that up with, I think, a, a, um, a nine-month course with John Seymour and Michael Neal. Then I did an Ian McDermott practitioner mm. and a master practitioner with Ian, and he had lots of Americans in. He had Tad James, Robert Dilts. Uh, he had others I can't remember the names of offhand. Uh, but all of that was absolutely fascinating to to me and went on for at least a couple of years and during that time I was I was just thinking more and more I think I've had enough of teaching I think I've had enough of language learning yeah. I'm going to go back to kind of some psychological roots and and that's how I got started really yeah yeah and um we're going to talk a little bit later on about, about about how it came that you that you specialize and have developed such a reputation for working with children and and likewise so so i'm going to ask a little bit about about that later on but also um, um instead of our usual how do you explain hypnosis to your clients and others question that i that i usually ask at this point i'm going to ask that later on with regards to how you then explain it to children and I, i'm going to be fascinated to hear your answers so you, you mentioned then um, um, Ian McDermott and John Seymour. Um, um, could you explain and talk a little bit about some of your major influences in, in this field? Um, perhaps even some of the books and authors that have taught you the most or teachers that have been the most influential upon you and, and perhaps the reasons why? Mm. Um, there, there have been so many really and yes. 
but I would say in the NLP field that Ian McDermott, for me, was head and shoulders among the rest. I, yeah. I thought he was brilliant. Um, he was probably the best therapist that I've ever seen interacting with people, I think. Um, and, well, I have seen an awful lot since as well, but he, he was absolutely excellent and he really inspired me, I think. Yeah, um, I think the fact that he had also been a teacher before he, he started this work, that meant that he was really very good about putting ideas across and involving everybody and getting us to work out things on our own without just sort of feeding us full of information. So yeah. in the NLP field, I would definitely say Ian McDermott. Uh, I think after I had done those courses, I... Uh, I also did hypnotherapy courses because I decided at that point that I wanted to do something within the therapy field. So I, I did hypnosis courses as well. And actually, while I was on the while I was on the uh, Ian McDermott course, I remember meeting a hypnotherapist there. And I suppose she, in a way, inspired me with the hypnotherapy because I'd never thought of doing such a thing. Yeah. And she worked with people. And I was in absolute awe when she was telling me about the kind of metaphors that she used and uh, how she got this result and that result. And uh, I, I do remember saying to her, I cannot believe how you have such a wonderful imagination, how you can dream up these stories. I mean, I do realize subsequently that quite a lot of these stories were in various scripts and so on, but still I was incredibly impressed and I, I did say I could never ever do that. I, I just wouldn't <laughs> be able to do it. And she was saying, oh yes, of course you would. And I, I said, no, you know, it's just not me. I haven't got that kind of imagination. And I suppose, in a way, that I am as surprised as anyone that I ended up um, working with children where you have to use your imagination a tremendous amount and where, um, you know, I've written books that are full of imaginative metaphors. It's, yeah. It still surprises me, Adam, actually, um, even now as we're talking about it. Mm. But mm. I suppose that's that's how I first got into into working in, in this field mm. um, uh, and so th throughout the years that, that you have been working in this field um, um, what has been what has been one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that, that you've directly witnessed um, well I, I have witnessed loads uh, yeah. one just in, in terms of I suppose the most astonishing uh, for me at the time was when uh, Tad James did uh, did something with with a person on on the course who was very very suggestible, very hypnotizable, uh, and he hypnotized her into into her body becoming absolutely rigid, absolutely you know rigid as a board. Yeah. And she she was between two chairs, and he actually got someone to sit on her. Now, 
I, w I would never do that and I don't actually approve of it because you don't know what damage you could do but it was it was absolutely fascinating to watch that mm. she could do that yeah. so that that was quite um, an eye-opening thing um, for me personally um, it was also when I was doing hypnotherapy course, I did it, uh, the first one with the London College of Clinical Hypnosis. Yes. And at that time, Michael Joseph was still teaching on, on courses. Yeah. And um, just for myself, I was still a teacher and I was about to go and give a, a course on some various um, non-verbal communication to the British Council, which at the time was very prestigious for me. But it was almost sort of like teaching your grandmother to suck eggs because what I was doing was suggesting ways where they could um, deal with the staff of the schools that they were going into to examine and to assess that they could do this in in a more, if you like, user-friendly way. Yeah. So, I mean, they were my examiners, if you like, at the school, and I suddenly became absolutely terrified. I'd been <laughs> so pleased to be asked to do it, and I was literally terrified. And I was on the point of phoning up and saying, you know, the usual thing, relative was desperately ill and I had to go and look after them or something and I wouldn't be able to do it. I, it was really that bad. Wow. And I, I appealed to Michael, I said, please, Michael, just do something with me so that I can go and do this because I really, part of me really wants to. And, and he did with me um, just a hand levitation and... Uh, indirect and direct suggestions. I didn't really know exactly what was going on at the time because this was very, very um, early on in the course. And he did that and he must have done it in about 10 minutes. And, uh, and I went off completely happily. Um, I started sleeping at night, which I hadn't been doing for the previous week or two weeks. And so for me, that was a personally kind of amazing thing. I was filled with fear. And in 10 minutes, I thought, oh, of course I can do this. I, I really want to do this. So um, that that was really, um, for me, uh, impressive. Yeah. And I think also very impressive, probably the most impressive was um, seeing that live hernia operation on television. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, the hypnosurgery with Dr. John yeah. Butler. That's it. That was yeah. amazing. And subsequently, I've got to know the surgeon who who did that operation quite well. And I um, also had contact with John Butler. And mm. um, I mean, that, that was amazing. Absolutely amazing just seeing them do this. The only anaesthetic he had was John Butler, who had, um, I think he'd only done something like a couple of sessions, maybe three sessions with this guy beforehand, who wasn't able to have an anaesthetic for some reason. Mm. Um, and I thought that was that was probably the most impressive thing that I'd seen. Yeah, actually. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love that show. Mm. Um, 
people can go can go Google that and find it on YouTube. Um, it's available uh, on YouTube for anybody listening. Um, Hypnosurgery uh, on on the More Four channel. Um, so, Linda, if you could go back to when oh. you started out in this field as a hypnotherapist, as a hypnosis professional, knowing knowing what you know now, is there anything that you do differently? Um, and 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 if so, is there is there any advice that the person you are today would give to that younger you that you'd that, that you'd consider extending or sharing to uh, hypnotherapists that are tuning in to this particular show? Mm, I I find that quite difficult to answer in a way because mm. things fell into place for me quite nicely so I don't know that I would have changed an awful lot really um, what I would like to have done was perhaps to have started it 10 years earlier than I yes. did um, but um, I, I couldn't do that I think what I would say is that um, if I was giving advice to somebody now, I would agree that finding um, a niche to specialize in is a very good thing, particularly at the moment because there are so many general hypnotherapists around. And when I started, there were not that many. Mm. Um, but with reservations, I think possibly that people start... Um, start niching too soon and that I think you need to have uh, as much general experience, general hypnotherapy experience as you possibly can really to get good at doing as much as, as you can before you start setting yourself up in a niche and setting yourself up as as an expert in something. Yeah. Uh, so um, I don't truly know that I would have done things that differently. Mm, mm. Was, there, was there any reason that you didn't start 10 years earlier? Uh, well, it just never occurred to me. I was, I was very happy uh, doing the work that I did, which was yeah. teaching English to foreign students. And uh, that was a very good time in my life. It felt just right. Mm. Uh, and I did love doing that and actually it was an incredibly useful background to have yes I, I bet I believe um, probably for doing lots of different things but because we were teaching people to communicate in for them a foreign language mm. it was about verbal and non-verbal communication so it you know, I, w I was very aware of the nuances and the subtleties of language. Yes. And one of the things that you have to do as a teacher of a language is to be able to speak, speak quite slowly, so that they can understand you. I mean, and particularly when you're when you're dealing with beginners, uh, but also to speak in a natural way. So yeah. we used to have, I suppose the sort of thing that we would call scripts in, in hypnosis. We would have um, little dialogues and so on that we would do. And I was very used to doing that and making it sound as natural as I could. I could read, uh, read from a page and make it sound like natural speech. Mm -hmm. So that was a really very, very useful thing because I remember when I first started in the hyp hypnotherapy course and 
probably like most courses, we had lots of scripts that we practiced reading from. I didn't find that difficult to do, whereas I know some people found that very, very difficult to do. Yeah. So, so that was useful, and of course it's been useful for me later um, because I train other people to work with children. Yeah. Uh, that teaching background has been really, really useful for that. But a lot of it was interacting with people, seeing how they, how they responded, um, just, um, can't think of the word I want, just, just noticing how they responded and responding in the right way to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's some, there's some great advice in there uh, for people to, to really get a hold of and, uh, and apply. I think that's, that's incredibly useful. Um, we're going to, and I really appreciate your advice there with regards to niche and and your own niche where, that you have such a such a wonderful reputation within um, is something we're going to explore in a short while. Um, for now, though, um, Linda, where can people go to learn more about your work, more about uh, what you offer the world? Ah, oh, well, I'm glad you asked me that, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> um, they can go to my website, yeah. which is www firstwayforward.com and that's all words not numbers firstwayforward.com and to go to the workshops or training page and they can see all my autumn courses coming up but next year they can see spring courses and so on Um, so they can do that and uh, this year they can also if they're so inclined go to Canary Wharf at the end of October, beginning of November, and go to the Hypnosis UK convention where I'm speaking, as I believe you are too. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. The pair of us are. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to meeting you in real life there. Yeah. Um, um, I will put a link to your website and there'll be um, a link to your own presentation at the Hypnosis convention. Um, at this particular page of the Hypnosis Weekly website where we have this episode. Um, thank you ever so much, Linda. Um, we will be back with Linda Hudson in just a short while. enjoyed that. Um, I'm still sniggering at Linda's newfound protocol for dealing with enuresis, that of chocolate, Coca-Cola and 10 minutes prep. Um, As I said, we'll be back with Linda for our professional discussion shortly. On to this week's hypnosis in the news then. And this week I am excitedly citing two major film clips that have featured in the media over the years. Neither are really recent, um, um, but one certainly a lot more so than the other. Um, But I like to simply champion stuff that is highly impressive in our field. And I urge all of you hypnotherapists and hypnosis professionals out there to share these videos far and wide to show the world that we are far, far more awesome than uh, some people may at first suspect. First up, then, um, um, is is an article and clip entitled Hypnosis Replaces Anesthetic in Brain Surgery and There's Video. 
So for me, if, uh, if you ever need a reminder of the sheer level of awesomeness of this field that we work in, then this video really ought to do the job for you. It certainly does for me. And uh, this is an article which includes video taken of brain surgery being conducted using hypnosis um, for anesthesia. Um, I do forgive the authors of the study and of this particular article um, for their continual use of the naughty T word. Yes, I'm referring to trance. Ah, oh, I get a peculiar feeling each time I say or hear it. Nonetheless, the hypnosis procedure which replaces general anaesthetic within this study was used on 37 different patients undergoing surgery to remove brain tumours. Um, and some of them were, were operated on more than once as well, as, as I'll mention later on. Researchers reported in the journal Neurosurgery at the end of last year. It was a smallish study, agreed, but the authors conclude that their small study's success suggests hypnosis could be a viable tool to help sedate patients during delicate brain surgery. Usually, then, um, anesthesiologists uh, uh, put patients to sleep for the start of such a surgery while the skull is opened. They then rouse them in the middle, then put them back to sleep for the surgical wrap-up, so to speak. The technique is referred to simply as the asleep-awake-asleep, the triple-A procedure. But it has two major drawbacks, uh, historically. Doctors have to monitor and manage the patient's breathing during a, a, an already very involved Involved surgery and it can take some patients you know particularly the older ones a fair while to fully wake up from the anesthesia which lengthens surgery time so to see if hypnosis could be a viable alternative uh, researchers at the Centre Hospitalier Universitaire de Tours in France pitched the method to brain cancer patients these patients all needed an awake surgery to remove a certain type of brain tumour that arises in glial cells and these are support cells in the brain called glioma for the hypnosis sedation to work patients had to meet with a hypnotist a few weeks before the surgery and uh, and practice the process in all, the researchers ended up conducting 43 surgeries with patients using just hypnosis. Um, and they concluded that hypnosis is not a trivial or an easy swap from the standard method. In fact, I'll quote the authors, they said, it requires intense involvement and long training of the entire team, including the patient. Um, therefore, the method we describe is limited by the necessity to work with an anaesthetic team experienced in both neuroanesthesiology and hypnotherapy. The study does have a big flaw, however, you know, we'll be really open about that. It didn't include a control group, and that makes it impossible to compare the pros and cons of hypnosedation to the AAA method. Um, and, but the authors acknowledge this and still conclude that um, the AAA um, um, tends to be the gold standard, and overall, hypnosedation, um, um, you, you know, has, has potentially has some drawbacks. But, you know, it's a useful alternative for some patients. Um, um, but they, and they also did note that in questionnaires and assessments that were taken after the surgeries, most of the patients reported positive experiences um, and little to no psychological impact from the generally tough operation. You know, only two of the 37 patients said that perhaps they wouldn't use hypnosis again. Um, now, the awesomeness of that video, um, which, which, you know, it, it's not for you if you're squeamish, by the way, I hasten to add that. But the awesomeness of that video is only equaled for me by the 2006 Hypnosurgery Live 
TV showcase of hypnosis for pain and anesthesia. Um, and I talk about the show a great deal on my training courses. It was a live broadcast on the More Forward channel a while back now, whereby the value of using hypnosis for pain control and anesthesia was showcased. It's a must see for any hypnosis professional or person interested in the hypnotherapy field. Um, the program entitled Hypnosurgery Live was this live television broadcast um, um, here in Britain um, back in April 2006, which demonstrated the latent power and potential of the human mind. And a man had a tumour surgically removed from his stomach without the use of any pain-removing drugs whatsoever. Um, um, and to accomplish this task, the physical sensation was muted in the body via the use of hypnosis. The official more for description of the show was as followed. Um, as follows. Presented by Sarah Smith, this two-hour special asks whether hypnosis should be more widely available to people unsuited to, too weak for, or afraid of conventional anaesthetics. The programme includes discussion and debate as well as live and archive examples of the efficacy of hypnosis in a surgical context and culminates in a live hernia operation being performed under hypnosis with no anaesthetic at all. Should the technique be more widely available in the NHS? Could it potentially save lives, offer wider patient choice and speed the recovery process? Um, for me, the answer to all those questions is yes. And, um, you know, it's 10 years on and it's, it's a shame that the show itself has not made a bigger impact. You know, because 10 years on, I don't think it is um, widely available in the NHS. You know, well, let's be honest, it's not. Um, um, but that's a discussion for another day. Links to these stories, to these videos, um, um, which are all available online, are listed under this week's podcast entry uh, over at the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up, we have this week's professional discussion then. I welcome back Linda Hudson. Um, when I was asking Linda about a topic to discuss, I asked her if we could discuss and explore her work with children, not just because I'm interested in paediatric applications of hypnosis, and not just because I'm a father to a three and four year old, and, and, and I'm interested from, from, from the father perspective, but also because I love to see fellow professionals and peers absolutely nail a niche in the way Linda has successfully done. You know, a couple of our, our former guests have done the same thing. And that's what we discuss here. So here is this week's professional discussion with Linda Hudson. Enjoy. So I'm rejoined once again um, with, uh, or by rather, Linda Hudson. And um, Linda has a reputation that I've referred to a couple of times already and, and, and specialises in working with children. And when I invited her onto the podcast here, I, I asked her if, if that was a subject that, that we could talk about. I really wanted to for a wide range of personal as well as professional reasons. Um, first of all, then, Linda, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how did it how did it happen? How did it come to be that you ended up specialising in, in working with children? Like a lot of things in my life, really, by accident. Mm. And I think uh, in a similar way to a lot of people, I was working with an adult client and uh, for some reason he must have known that people did 
um, help children who had bedwetting problems. And he said, oh, you know, could you help my grandchild? And I said, oh, yes, I don't see why not. Um, and I, I have to admit, I had had no experience in working with children at all, but I was sort of up for saying, yes, why not? Yeah. And uh, so that was what happened. They came along and uh, I, I often uh, talk in my classes about what a horrendous experience it was. <laughs> because I didn't know what I was doing basically. We had had, I think, about half an hour on, um, on our hypnotherapy courses about yeah. working with children and there was some uh, little script in it which was pretty hopeless. And so um, I planned what I was going to, to do with her and I did it in, I did that in about 10 minutes, mm -hmm. uh, learning as I did, that things go three or four times as quickly when you're working with children um, as they do when you're working with adults. So that's the first thing that it's useful to know, that you really have to be on your toes. And uh, whereas if people were thinking they could pick up a script and do it with an adult and it would all be nice and slow and easy and they'd close their eyes and the adult would do just as you told them to do and the, you know, the child doesn't do that and this child didn't do it and I hadn't set the thing up properly because basically I didn't really know what I was doing. It was horrendous and um, I would have been so embarrassed had, had <laughs> seen that that session really um, and uh, the other thing was it was as though all common sense left me because when I when I started I was thinking oh yes you have to have good rapport with these people so she said she was hungry hungry so I, I think I gave her some chocolate, lovely sugary chocolate, you know, which is going to make people hyper. <laughs> and she was thirsty, so I thought, oh, yes, let's, you know, let's get her on side. I gave her a Coca-Cola. Well, I mean, can you think of <laughs> more ridiculous to have done? So I probably made every mistake in the book, really. Mm. And... Um, my response to that afterwards was, oh, oh my God, yeah, how awful was that? Strangely, do you know, I can't understand this, but strangely she did stop wetting the bed. So I must have done something right. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't know how. But what it did make me do was think, I'm never, ever going to have a similar experience again. I'm going to learn how to do this properly and mm -hmm. so I set about really thinking about it finding out more about it I did really do an awful lot of teaching myself how to do it uh, because at that time which was more than 20 years ago now there was very little literature at, at the time yeah. um, so I, I read you know, some of what there was uh, one of which was called uh, Hypnosis and Hypnotherapy with Children by Olness and Cohen. And it, it, yeah. was, it was a good book, but it was, it was very medical. 
Yeah, they're prolific researchers, Olness mm. uh, and Cohen. Yeah, but it, it was it was good, and I and I think I I absorbed more or less everything in that, and and then went about teaching myself how to how to make things a little bit more interesting and how to make them um, more relevant to the kinds of things that I was doing with children because on the whole they were not medical problems. Yeah. So that's how it came about. And yeah. also I should say that when I was a teacher I wasn't teaching young children. I was teaching largely adults and adolescents. So yeah. I didn't have that experience of working with young children. And I think this child, if I go back, she was about seven. So uh, so it was all... Yeah, yeah. And and I think I think one, one lovely moral of the story for all our listeners to take away here is um, 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 the, the, the treatment for enuresis. All you need to know from now on, chocolate, Coca-Cola <laughs> and 10 minutes preparation and that's it cured it's in the bag I really I really appreciate your candor with that um so so I, I mentioned earlier on during the interview um, um about, about about the explanation of hypnosis tell me tell me how, how do you explain hypnosis to children I suppose I don't explain fully my idea of what hypnosis is to children mm. and it depends how old they are I mean I, I do work sometimes with very young children yeah. thinking about five or six you're really not going to be able to explain what hypnosis is so I don't um, to them but what I would do with children that I see probably from about um, let's say six to 10-ish, the kind of explanation that I would give them would be something something like this. Um, I, I would say, um, you know what I do? Um, I'm called a hypnotherapist. And that means that I help children do all kinds of things that they really want to do and they've been having maybe some difficulties doing it. So what we're going to do in a moment is to help you use your brain in a really, really clever way. And your brain is absolutely remarkable. And the best way your brain works is if you get into a kind of daydreamy state where your mind or where your brain is at its most powerful and at its most creative it can make all kinds of changes to help you feel more confident or maybe help you stay nice and calm and relaxed. Lots of embedded commands help you take control of those sounds in your throat and make them quieter and quieter. In fact, some children make them so quiet that with a bit of practice, you can't hear them at all. So I, I would just say something like that, which... Mm. Um, is full of the appropriate indirect commands to them. And I do tend to talk a bit more about the brain. So really what I do is talk about the brain mostly because most, most children learn about the brain at, at school and it's a concept that they're familiar with. And I also tell them that actually it's, it's really rather different from when they're at school 
because maybe when they're at school the teacher wants them to focus and to concentrate and again there's some indirect um, commands in there um, and what I want you to do is to have like a little daydream so it's just the opposite and I say mm -hmm. just imagine if you were in class and you were staring out of the window and you were daydreaming your teacher might say to you hey listen Joe listen look at me uh, whereas what I want you to do is to have that little daydream because that's where your brain works best and will help you to do whatever it is you want to do, help you feel so much calmer. So I would introduce it mostly like that. Mm. But yeah. interestingly, um, again, when a child is maybe from about eight or nine years old, um, then I do start using the word hypnosis because um, a, a little while ago I, I was reading some research about the, the effects of hypnosis and uh, the idea of, of suggestion um, with hypnosis and people being very suggestible with the, with the idea of hypnosis. Mm. And so this research said that, it was just a smallish study, but it found that people who had had the word hypnosis included in the induction or included in the, in the talk beforehand were, uh, were more likely to pick up the suggestion so that the therapy would be more effective. Yeah. Indicating really that uh, that we are all highly suggestible people, and and you know possibly hypnosis is is more about suggestibility than the state. I, I don't know. I'm I'm in a few, not just two minds. I'm in several <laughs> minds really about that. But anyway, now if I think that they've heard the word hypnosis, I will I will use that, and I will say you know this daydreamy state is actually called hypnosis. Now, in, in days gone by, uh, I used to say to people on my courses that, um, that one of the differences between adults and children was that adults had heard about hypnosis and usually, you know, seen stage shows and so on, and you, you go through the thing of saying stage hypnosis is different from therapeutic hypnosis. Uh, and I say, oh, you don't have to do that with children. But increasingly you do, actually, because more and more children at a young age have either seen it or they've heard it or variations of it mm. in films. I think there's hypnosis in Harry Potter. So you actually do find that children have got this concept of hypnosis more. Yeah, yeah. And and you, you, you mentioned there... Um... Um, um, you know the, the, some of the some of the sort of distinctions between adults and children. Um, um, can I, how is working with children different from working with adults? Then the I, there are all kinds of ways, really. But uh, I suppose the thing that I alluded to earlier on with this bedwetting child that I saw. Yeah is that things go so much more quickly with 
uh, with children than they do with adults. So you need to have lots of ideas perhaps up your sleeve. Not that you'll necessarily use them all, you, you won't, but be prepared to move from one idea to another because as with, as with any client, you, you need to use what they bring to you. So I might have, you know, the most wonderful idea about going off in in a spaceship or something. But if I if I realise that, you know, it, it's a it's a little girly girl who wouldn't be in the slightest bit interested in that, it wouldn't matter how brilliant my idea was, I I wouldn't use it. I would pick up on something that she that she told me. But um the speed of it is important because if you if you suggest that they might imagine something or see something um, in their in their mind, see something in their imagination, they just do it just like that. Um, you know, there's there's no coaxing them to do it. There's no having to talk in a particularly hypnotic way. Uh, you just say, you know think about this or see that and they do it because I think nearly all children are good at visualizing things not not all but I think they're used to to doing that they're used to doing it at school they're used to imaginative play so they do it because they're used to it and they haven't got these preconceptions I can't do this I can't do that and also, they're used to taking instructions from people at school. So, you know, when people say do this, usually, <laughs> with a bit of luck, <laughs> they'll, they'll do it. Um, and they don't need to spend hours and hours doing it, nor do they need to spend hours, I'm exaggerating, nor do they need to spend a long time, usually, drifting down into a, a regular kind of relaxing induction. Mm. They just do it. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, suppose that, sorry, can I go yeah, on? I yeah, suppose that do. comes back a little bit to um, my personal idea about what hypnosis is or what it is with children. I think it's absorption of the mind it's engagement of the mind. You need to engage them in some kind of mental activity that they're interested in. And you've only got to, to watch a child uh, playing on their iPad or watching the television or um, playing on their Xbox. They are in a little trance state. They don't hear you. You, you talk to them and, and they're not just being rude <laughs> when they don't answer you, but they're in their own little world. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're a parent, aren't you? I am. And I'm sure that you talk to your children and that there are times when it's almost as though they don't hear you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, um, they, they, they already, my kids are four and three. And mm. um, um, already they have very cleverly devised selective hearing. Yes. Yeah. It is. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What, what, when they um, when they want to hear, they do hear me. I, I you know I, I I swear blind that they they turn their ears off to certain messages that I give them. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so so with regards to working with children, then um, what are the sorts of issues that you see most 
with regards to, to, to the children that come to see you? Sadly, uh, I would say that anxiety underlies most of the issues that they come to see me with. Uh, and, I mean, there, there are the obvious things. I see an awful lot of children who've got phobias of dogs or phobias of, of scare, other scary things. Um, but they can, oh, they're frightened of all sorts. Yeah. They, I mean, there's separation anxiety. I see a, a lot of children who have that. Sleeping difficulties and underlying sleeping difficulties. Sometimes there's separation anxiety as well because yeah. they're just frightened of being separated from the parent, even if the parent is downstairs. Uh, they're, they're anxious about monsters. They're anxious about... Um, burglars coming in and I think unfortunately uh, these days there's such a lot of violence on the news that that they hear and see things that are genuinely frightening and distressing yeah and I, I often think people should be a little bit more careful about um, at, at that young age about not letting children be in the room when when the news is on actually you know yeah. very young because it is some of the things you see are absolutely horrific aren't they they, they, they really are they really are I, you know I, I I concur with you and and and, and it is such a shame that um, that, that there is such that, you know such a prevalence of anxiety amongst children that that requires you know assistance of a professional um, Linda, can you tell us a little bit about your approach then, the kind of approach that you take? Is there, is there a flavour to it? Is there a particular modality that you adopt? Uh, um, um, what sort of approach do you take when you're working with children? Mm. I am absolutely passionate about using solution-focused approaches. Yeah. Um, and I, I do really with adults as well. It's my main approach that I will use with adults. Uh, even if I'm talking about something which, or if they're talking about something which has happened in the past that's traumatic, of course I don't ignore that, but I'm still um, inclined to bring them back to what would they like instead. Instead of being anxious, how do they want to feel in that situation? What will it be like when they're thinking confidently uh, when they're being calm, what will that be like? So I get more and more uh, detailed information from them about what is going to be better for them. And I do actually um, quite often say to them, uh, now I know um, why your mum wants you to do this or that. Um, I mean, I, actually selective eating is what I'm seeing a tremendous amount of at the moment. So yeah. I'll Things like, I know why your your mum is is worried and why she wants you to eat better or um, eat more because she wants you to grow strong and she wants you to um, you know get all the vitamins you eat and this this that and the other. But what I really want to know is, what about you? What's in it for you? Because you're the person I want to help. I only want to help you, actually, if you want me to help you, which I always think puts that 
sort of responsibility back onto them, even at quite a young age. I want to help you, but only if you want me to. Mm. Um, but it's all about what will be better. So then I get more and more detailed information about how will this make a difference um, to the way their brother and sister treat them? Um, what will the teacher be thinking when she sees them uh, putting their hand up? Will she be so amazed that she falls off her chair? Or, um, lots and lots of solution-focused question and questions and I make a note of the answers that they give me and it's almost then that they are giving me the therapy that they need because um, again it can be quite simple I think uh, one of the things also to remember with children is that they respond very very well to suggestion uh, so a lot of the work that I would do uh, centers around indirect suggestion, direct suggestion, and, and I think we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't ignore how powerful just plain suggestion can be for them. Yeah. Um, uh, followed up by some um, guided information, not information, guided visualization. Um, of seeing themselves uh, carrying out how they want to be instead of how things have been. And it's not always completely guided in as much as I don't tell them what to see. But so I'm full of, um, you know, the sort of little Ericksonian things like, oh, and I wonder, uh, I wonder what your mum will say when she hears that, hey, you got up and you've got a dry bed. What's what's she going to say? What does her face look like? What will your dad say? Will you tell her or will she tell her, him? And so it's building up a whole lot of picture um, of, of the whole, but asking lots of little detailed instructions and sometimes I do it so they tell me the answers and sometimes if I have taken them into quite um, quite a little daydreamy trance state I, I just ask the questions and let them think about it and let them see it. Mm, mm. That's uh, I mean, fascinating stuff there. Now when I was when I was doing doing some research upon you um, one of the things that I went and and came across, of course, I knew about you and your book in particular before, 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 before you and I were in contact. But once we got in contact, you know, because I, you know, I have to introduce you at the beginning of the show and talk about some cool stuff um, and so on. And, um, um, you know, I, I was aware that your book, Scripts and Strategies in Hypnotherapy with Children, um, was, was, was available and was out there and, and people spoke highly of it. Um, um, yeah, I saw some of the plaudits that it had from Gilboyne and Rubin Bettino, as well as a whole bunch of, of, of other really impressive authors and PhDs and heads of different <laughs> hypnotherapy associations. Um, um, so, but, but with all of that in mind, you know, you know with, with the plaudits in mind, and you know, you've also written another, another book which has scripts in it. 
what, what's your opinion then on using scripts um, um, or, or, or not using scripts as far as therapists are concerned? Uh, I think, A, if you're going to use a script, you have to be selective about which scripts you will use. And um, the scripts that are in my books, I didn't just sort of write them in, in five minutes. I, because they were for an audience of other people to use, mm. I did, I took immense care to try to get in lots of uh, embedded commands. And I did take particular care with with the language now i mean when i'm doing it off the top of my head probably i'm not as careful as as i would be for that but i think i would say there are scripts and scripts and that yeah. if you're going to use scripts a you should choose scripts where people quite obviously have taken enormous care with them in the first place but i would also say that and I, and I do say in my book, I say these scripts are not meant to be picked up and just read off the page as they stand, that they need to be, I, I prefer to call them a framework, really. Yeah. They give you an idea that, that people can use and make use of in sometimes almost word for word, but very often I would change things. Um, each each script in in the books have been written for a particular purpose, a particular topic. But you could you could take the bare bones of that script and you could use it for almost anything if you're inventive mm. and, and make it right for that uh, either an adult in the adult book or for the child um, for for the child in front of you. Never just you know, read it out as it is. I I don't do that with it. I I use them as frameworks. But they all all of the scripts in the book came out of ideas that uh, that I have used lots of times with with children. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I I I'm fascinated with that. You know, I I I very often talk about and if if ever I recommend um, um, a book. That, that has scripts in it to a student, for example, I'll say pretty much what you just said. That is, you know, please don't read it, re, re, read it or even regurgitate it verbatim. No. Instead, you know, use it as a framework or use it as, as inspiration or to give you some ideas and, and, and work at it. And, and also, you know, l let it fit your own voice and be congruent yes. to the kind of person that you are and, of course, the kind of person that, that your client is. Um, I can understand, you know, scripts being used when when research is being conducted, you know, and, and a standardised protocol has to be has to be done. But I think, um, um, you know, my, my thoughts have always been in the past that if you're just sat there reading to a client, that that sometimes a client may, you know, has the possibility to doubt your professionalism or, or your skill, for example. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that was real music to my ears. You said that, you know what the, the subject, you know, especially because my kids, you know, especially as, as a father myself, I'm fascinated with 
with the paediatric applications of hypnosis and so on. And, and, and I could talk to you for hours and hours and I can't wait to go and um, sit in on your presentation, your lecture at the hypnosis convention later on this year. Um, but we're out of time here. Um, um, Linda Hudson, thank you very much for coming and being a part of the Hypnosis Weekly podcast. Oh, thank you for asking me and it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed that discussion and equally I thoroughly enjoyed my time with Linda off air and I'm looking forward to meeting her later this year at the UK Hypnosis Convention. So on to our evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week. So in a lengthy uh, title for this week's study that I'm mentioning, uh, the study entitled Stress Reducing Regulative Effects of Integrated Mental Training with Self-Hypnosis on the Secretion of DHEAS and Cortisol in Plasma, a pilot study. This is a 2006 study by Johansson and Una Stahl uh, that featured and was published in the Contemporary Hypnosis Journal. Now, in this study, it was shown that self-hypnosis training significantly reduces stress. Okay, so that's that's our fact of the week. But the pilot study examined the influence of self-hypnosis training when integrated into daily life and work for six months. Um, and the stress hormone cortisol was reduced by 12.3% in the group that was taught self-hypnosis skills, while cortisol levels remained the same in the control group. Now, the anti-aging hormone, um, DHEA-S, that stands for dehydropiandrosterone sulfate, was significantly increased by 16% in the group taught self-hypnosis compared to no change in the control group. You know, just, just wow, just wow. You've got to love that, haven't you? Um, hormones directly affected by the use of self-hypnosis. Um, full study details can be found over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. So that's it for this week's 55th edition. I do have many more exciting guests that are welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. In the coming weeks, too, we'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www www.hypnosis-weekly.com. My guest next time out is another lady who specialises in working with children, Sonia Musiman from Switzerland. Uh, she'll be my guest. We'll be chatting about her mind TV approach to working with children. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again to Linda Hudson. My thanks to you as always for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. <music>